Hey folks, welcome to Content People. I'm your host, Meredith Farley, and today we talk with Chris Cantwell, an incredibly talented writer, director, and filmmaker with an impressive portfolio of work. From co-creating the AMC show Halt and Catch Fire to executive producing Lodge 49 and venturing very successfully into the world of comic books, Chris has a wealth of experience and insights to share. In this episode, we talked about what it's like to pitch a TV show, what it's like to find out that AMC wants to buy your TV show, navigating creative partnerships, and the impact of AI on storytelling. We also chat about his latest comic book, Hellcat, and touched a bit on the concept of the muse in creative work, which is one of my low-key favorite topics, and Chris had some very interesting things to say about it. We also got his thoughts on the term content. Spoiler, he's not a fan, and I cannot say I disagree with his points, podcast title aside. I had so much fun chatting with Chris. I hope that you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. I've been looking forward to sharing it. If you do like it, please rate, subscribe, or share it with a friend. And without further ado, here's the interview. All right, we're going. Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on Content People. I'm very excited to talk to you. In prepping these questions, it was almost hard because you're such a productive, creative, successful, multi-hyphenate person. I wasn't sure how to sum you up. So for folks who aren't familiar with you, how would you describe what you do? I would say first, I feel like the thing I do most these days is juggle my three young boys who are nine years old, five years old, and then almost eight months old. So that feels like predominantly what my mind is taken up with all the time. But aside from that, I'm a TV writer, some feature screenplay work as well. I've directed a feature. I've also directed a television, obviously, my own show. And then I'm a big comic book writer at this point. I've been writing comics pretty consistently since 2017 or so. I think the first issues hit in 2018, but I've been working in comics since 2017. So I stumbled into this second career, which is similar to my primary career, but, and one that takes up a lot of time and energy, but it's extremely rewarding and been very fun. Yeah, that, that pretty much encapsulates it. Okay. So a dad who has some creative projects on the side. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've always given my kids free comic books to get them to be quiet. But I was just telling a friend of mine that like, my kids see comics. It's not super fair to my older one. He's starting to get back into it. But I feel because it's what I do, it's not as interesting to them. It's like everybody yeah. has like their parents' job and you're like, well, what is it? So I feel like sometimes I hand them comic books that I've written and they look at them like tax forms. They're like, <laughs> not, they're like it's not Pokemon. So who cares? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. super interesting. That's really funny. I w- do you think that'll change in five or 10 years? Or do you think that'll just be the way of things for quite a while? It'll pa- I'm sure it'll cu- you know, ebb and flow, right? Like they, they're, I think they're very familiar with comic book characters in a way that maybe their friends aren't. Everybody's seen like the Marvel movies and things like this. But like my sons love to dig through the DC Universe Encyclopedia, the Marvel Comics Encyclopedia, Star Wars Encyclopedia. And they're very big Star Trek kids too just because it's something we discovered that we could watch together during the pandemic and at this point i think i've gone through the original series of star trek with my sons twice and then we're in the final season of next generation right now and while we were doing that i started writing star trek comic books so they it's like in their world and my older son has had an appreciation of it i think like he'll realize later 
how nuanced his comic book appreciation is where like he's read like the first volume of the original what if series in marvel which is i don't think any kid his age has read he's read like the walt simonson thor run from the 80s just because i knew that was good and then gave it to him for like a random i was at a convention i picked it up and gave it to him like he just read like the latest volume of world's finest by mark wade and dan mora so he's I think he's, he doesn't realize how much he's like on the inner circle, but like one day. And then when they inherit my comic book collection, they'll be like, oh, okay, got it. But often it's it's not Pokemon. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I know I mentioned to you before we started recording, but I did get to read an advanced copy of Hellcat because Chris Hassan, who introed us, got his hands on it for me. And I'm not, I'm... One thing I was I want to be mindful of in this interview is I'm a really huge fan of Halt and Catch Fire. I want to pick your brain about that a lot. I right. was a huge fan of Lodge 49. I'm not super mm. in the comic book world. So one to all the folks listening who are huge fans, I'm sorry because I'm trying, but I'm sure I will miss some juicy and interesting questions. But I will, I think as I've gotten older, actually, I've gotten a little more interested and open to comic books because a lot of things I love about storytelling, like archetypes and heroes' journeys, like are all in there. And it took me a while, I think, to realize that it's just like another entry point to deep, interesting, creative storytelling in a way that I don't think I gave it credit for when I was like 13 and was like, no, comics are lame. I'm not into that. Like, yeah, I was the opposite at 13. I was like, this is all I have. Like, that's where I was. So I was like, I am alone in my room. I must, <laughs> I am emotionally in turmoil. Let me turn to the X-Men. Wow. Yeah. But no, I totally get that. All right. So I want to try and come back around to Hellcat and comic books. But first, I really want to, I'm going to exercise restraint and not just pick your brain about Halt and Catch Fire mm-hmm. for a few minutes. And I'm really going to try and mine your experience for actionable advice or info that might be useful to our listeners and maybe touch on some topical items, too. I know you and I emailed a bit about the word content, and I love and I'm interested for your take on that. So I want to make sure we get to that, too. So I'm just going to jump in around Halt. So you and Chris Rogers wrote the pilot for Halt and Catch Fire, hoping to get jobs as writers. But instead, you ended up just landing your own series. Can you talk about how that experience changed your career trajectory? That's crazy. Yes, it was a crazy experience. I think that for Chris and I graduated from the screenwriting program at USC Film School in 2004. Chris had come out of the grad program at UCLA, I think a couple years after. Years go by where you're just scraping by odd jobs, whether it be tutoring the SAT. I think it was for a while I was a production coordinator for commercials and some documentary work. Chris was working in magazines and we had ended up at a digital startup that was trying to literally capitalize on the newfangled world of social media. So this would be around 2007, 2008. And 2007, 2008, we were working at the startup where I was working at the startup. I was actually the third hire. So it was very small. But they brought me in because of my production experience, because a lot of content, there's that word, on the internet was video-based, right? So YouTube was a big deal, right? We were two years into YouTube, three years into YouTube, and they brought me on for that. And then that startup got acquired by Disney, and then it became a strange little 
Skunk Works unit in Disney that was doing social media content that was video based. And then as Facebook became a thing, very Facebook oriented in terms of unifying and moderating and programming and editorializing content on Facebook. So every company does this now, right? But it's today is Tinkerbell Day or it's the, did you know this day in history, Marvel or not Marvel, but like Disney opened Pirates of the Caribbean for the first time. It would, we programmed that kind of stuff. And then right towards the end of my tenure, we started to touch on Twitter, but it was really YouTube and Facebook oriented. And this idea of virality and, and things like that, we ended up working with a lot of different business units, whether it be the studio, obviously, Pixar, the animation studio, the parks. We did a lot of really interesting, weird stuff for Disneyland and Disney World. A lot of that stuff I was involved in, whether it be like, are there ghosts in Disneyland? And then making found footage ghost videos, things like that. Hiding retro commercials that I made for Toy Story 3 for Lotso Hug and Bear, like the original 1983 ad for the Lotso Hug and Bear, and then just hiding that online, letting people find it. Just different things like that. And Rogers came in from magazines because magazines out on the West Coast, in terms of the Condé Nast office, had collapsed. They closed it. And he had come out of Architectural Digest. He was working at the Atlantic before that on the East Coast. And we needed someone with editorial experience. And so Chris came on to work on the Facebook side of things. So Chris and I worked together for a year before we both had realized that we were almost 10 years past screenwriting degrees. Mm. And so we just liked the cut of each other's jib. We were two guys we felt like that we could depend on in the company. We were doing presentations together to DreamWorks and other studios for social media. And then I think one, one night we got drinks and realized we were both what Chris refers to as dream deferred writers. And so we decided to write something together. And I was very much a feature writer at that point. I had done a little bit of TV in college, but I'm talking about I had done a spec episode for Monk. But Chris was very embroiled in TV. He's a few years younger than me. He had caught on to that late 90s Sopranos, second golden age of TV world. I had just started to watch Mad Men and I'd seen the first season of Breaking Bad, but Chris gave me the pilot for Breaking Bad to read. And I was blown away by it, just in terms of the structure, the way that it was laid out, what Bits Gilligan did with that piece. So we wrote a pilot together. And yes, it was very much, let's try to staff on a show. And so we, we wrote this pilot and we sent it to everybody we knew. We, I remember sitting down at Kohl's in downtown LA and writing a list of every single person we knew that we could send it to. And we landed on a guy named Chris Huvane, who was the West Coast editor for GQ and had worked with Chris in the office when Chris was at Architectural Digest. Chris had migrated over and become a manager at Management 360. We sent him the script and he really liked it. I had been like what's called hip-pocketed by an agent at that point in ICM, which means they can you can trade on their name, say you're repped by ICM, but they're not really going to return your calls or emails. It was based on some short form, short form work I had done and also some short films and things like that. But I had placed at a screenplay competition a few years previous. And, and yeah, so they, they told us basically, this is good, write another one and then you'll have two samples and we could try to staff you on a show. And the second staffing sample we wrote 
was Halt and Catch Fire, which was crazy. Because when Chris and I were sitting at Cools, I still remember having the conversation of what do we ultimately want out of this partnership if we work together? And we said, maybe in five to 10 years, we'll have our own shot at having our own show. And as tremendous good fortune would have it, it was the first thing we ever did. Because that script went to HBO, Showtime, and AMC. Those are the only people that were really making prestige cable television shows at that point. And we got general meetings at HBO and Showtime. And then AMC was actually very interested. And they bought it. And then they made it. <laughs> so that was the crazy thing that happened. So it was like an overnight success that also took about eight years. And it was a very circuitous route. It's interesting that, would you say that the impetus was that you and Chris were like, we really like working together. What is a project we can take on? Like, that's a vibe I'm getting more so than one of you being like, I'm desperate to bring this particular idea to fruition. Can this guy help me do so? Was it actually in service of the partnership at first a little bit? Yeah, I think it was the first pilot we wrote. It was something that I had been tooling around with as a feature. And I was always writing in the background. And I was getting, if you, those days when at that point, I was a creative director for Disney. So I was an executive. And you get disillusioned with your corporate job and you're like, what's my story? So you, I'm always writing in the background and I had been. And Chris came in and we worked on that piece together and ended up turning it into a pilot. But when they said, write something else, we, it was, we were already working together. So I was like, what's something else we want to, what's a story we have that we want to, that we want to tell. And we also, we did look at what was being done on TV at the time and what we thought might be feasible. But it was also, there was also this freedom in it because our agent at the time said, we're not going to sell this. This is just to get attention for you guys. So it was like, let's write whatever we want. And, and I think that I had gravitated towards that world of early computers for a long time. I think I've always had a real interest in it. My dad came out of that world. And so a lot of that ended up informing the pilot for Hall. And we found that way in. I think the key for the key that made Hall work is we found that way in, which was the reverse engineering story of the IBM PC. Dramatizing that felt like the story you didn't know. It wasn't Steve Jobs and Bill Gates right away. It was a real backdoor way into what other people were doing at the time. And that was fascinating to us. And it was also a show about partnerships. I think that was something that was key for Chris and I, because I had worked with partners in the past, but Chris and I forged this partnership together. He gave me a, he gave me a Michael Eisner podcast about partnerships because there's, there's the whole thing about Michael Eisner and Frank Wells working together at Disney. And there was a, I think Eisner had written a book about partnerships. I think and. Even in the book, it talked about Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and how one doesn't exist without the other. And that became a fascinating dynamic that really informed the characters in Halt and Catch Fire from the very beginning. First, it was Gordon and Joe and then Donna and Cameron. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I want to try and check that book out. I feel like partnerships in the creative world can be incredibly powerful and fruitful and amplify what you're working on, but also it can be frustrating and sometimes I think sometimes I've in my life had the feeling of I'd rather just work on this by myself and not deal with all this BS, which is not great always. I'm really interested in that concept of partnership. It's a tricky thing. And it, it's something that Chris and I had to, because I think that a partnership is one thing, 
when you're trying to gain success or gain entry into a world, but then when you're also successful in that world, what does the partnership look like? And I think we really had to discover that in real time. And it it's glib, but we treat we treated our partnership like our second marriage. We're both married, but it was it's important to be on the same page because if the partnership isn't working, then nothing else around the partnership is working. And that includes the show. Yeah. So to come back to the show a little bit, I'm really so I don't know what pitch meetings are like. I don't really know that much about Hollywood, but I'm really curious, like, what is it like to pitch a project to executives? Is there a structure? Is it like pitching a client on your services or is there a different dynamic? Chris and I did. It's funny you say that because Chris and I, I guess did have a little bit of training in that we had been very, quote unquote, client facing. And we had done that together as marketing execs at Disney. They deploy us to go pitch whoever, right? We're going to go talk to home entertainment about whatever, the new DVD release of X film, or we're going to go to the studio and meet with them. But I think what's so different about Hollywood, or at least pitching storytelling, is a lot of what you're pitching is yourself mm. as well. So you're pitching something that needs to be very personally resonant within you, and that needs to be apparent to the person you're speaking to. So I think that we never we didn't really go in and pitch halt. So I mentioned we had those general meetings. So a general meeting is usually you go into somebody's office and you sit on a couch and they give you a bottle of water and they say, we really love the script and what else are you working on? And you talk about that and what are you interested in? And then they say, we got this property that we're developing and we want to do a movie set in this world. And you go, oh, that's really cool. And then they go, send us the next thing you write. They'll validate your parking on the way out and then you leave. You have a connection at that point, which is, it's not worthless, but you're not getting a job out of that meeting. And the meetings we had had on halt, we had three. The first two were very much those. And the thing about the AMC meeting was, it was the first time they brought us into a conference room. So it wasn't someone's wow. office. And we got sat in the conference room and they had the posters for, at that point, it was Mad Men. Breaking Bad and Walking Dead. And it was intimidating. And then three executives came in and they all had copies of our script, which was also new. And so we had a sense that they were interested in the script. It was HBO, our agents had said, HBO had said, we want to talk to them about our slave. We really like their work. So it was like, okay, this would be a general meeting. Showtime was like, they really, they're interested, but they mostly want to talk about what they're doing. And you're like, okay. And then AMC, it was, they want to talk to you about Hulk. But they also want to talk to you about your slate. But it was the last meeting of the books and it kept getting pushed. Weeks would go by, it would be the day before, and then they pushed it another three weeks or whatever. And you're like, are we ever going to have this meeting? And so their offices are in Santa Monica. And I remember exiting the freeway and I stopped at a 76 gas station. And I just, in my head, I wanted to keep them talking about Halt as long as possible. So I just was practicing out loud sound bites and things that Chris and I had talked about in regards to the show or the things that were most important to me. And I was, I did that for about, I got there about an hour early and I was just doing that in my car. So it was just like last minute prep stuff. And then we went in and lo and behold, they put us into a conference room and I was able to talk about all those things and say all those sound bites that I had practiced in the car. And 
we ended up talking about Halt for about an hour and a half, and it was great. I think most of the meeting was about Halt. And I remember that Obama was in town in L.A., so I had to go way south to go back home where I lived downtown at the time with my wife. And by the time I got back home, which was hours later, we had an email from our agent that said, don't hold me to this, but I think they want to buy this script. So it was very sudden and also anticlimactic and just unlike how you always hear it going, where you got to go in there and do a huge song and dance. Now, like we did a year in development by the end of that year, Chris and I and our producers, Mark Johnson and Melissa Bernstein, who at the time were producing Breaking Bad for them, we had to go in and do a full, here's what the show is, here's our vision for the show, here's our personal connection for the show. Let's talk about the characters. Let's talk about where we would go in season one, where we would go beyond that. And that meeting was about two hours with the head of programming. And that was much more of a classic pitch, right? And then they made a decision to make the pilot based on that meeting. But yeah, it was really just, how long can I vamp about this thing I wrote in front of these executives? It helped that they were interested and showed up with the screenplay and so you kind of sense that opportunity and just try to leap through that small window, which I think we did. Yeah. Thank you for painting that picture for me. So conference rooms are a good thing if you're trying to get folks interested <laughs> in a script. It sounds Nothing's a guarantee, right? They might take you to a conference room and be like, we hated this. But and for us, it was like, this is our first conference room. It really felt like a big deal. And it was AMC has much bigger offices now. So they were small, but it was a conference room. And we went in there a year to the day. I think we first went in on October 23rd of 2011 for that first meeting. And then on October 24th of 2012, we went in for that final pitch I just described. And then they decided to make the pilot from there. So it was a year of development, which in TV is actually quite fast. Huh? Yeah. I read, so you've touched on this already, but I read that the character of Joe was loosely based on your father, who was also a salesman. My dad is a salesman too. I was, if that's right, and maybe if you could talk about that a little bit, about how Joe was slightly informed by him. Sure. Yeah, I think slightly is a good word to use. My dad will be like, oh yeah, my life story that my son made as a TV show, which is no. So much to see, wants to believe that. But it's very much rooted in the world he was working in at the time. So the launch point for the show is really close to what my dad was doing at the time. And that I think that lended to the authenticity and the, the different way into the story that really helped, right? It wasn't immediately Silicon Valley and Homebrew Computer Club and yeah. Windows versus Mac. It wasn't that. It was mainframe system software in Texas which felt very different and a little swept under the rug in terms of modern computer history, which I think is concerns primarily two things, home computers and then the internet, right? And so obviously that's where our show is headed, but that hinge point of how things shifted from giant computers the size of refrigerators in a basement in a corporate building and the yeah. business around that to the chunk of plastic and metal and stuff that sits on everybody's desk in their house, which now fits in our pocket, right? Like it's that sea change was what we were interested in for sure, but we wanted a different way in. And so my dad's career, which was really coming out of high school and then landing into computers 
primarily because of the time period. He just came out at the right time and there were computer programming jobs and there they were. And he went into that and he was a very good salesman and he became a computer software salesman for mainframe computing. And a lot of jobs were in Texas, which at the time was starting to become known as Silicon Prairie, just because there was a ton of computer stuff going on in Austin and Houston and, and Dallas and North Texas. You had companies like Tandy, which was a leather corporation, getting into computers. You had Radio Shack out of Tandy and you had Compact. You had EDS and Ross Perot. You had all of these companies springing up around there. So it just felt like a really interesting way in. And my Chris's dad is a salesman as well. So like that kind of, I was talking about how you've got to sell yourself. I think in a way, every salesman or saleswoman has to do that. My dad always talked about how the easiest sale he could do is if he believed in what he was selling and then he could also successfully sell himself in the room. So Joe was very much crafted in that mold. And then Gordon was the guy who could speak to the nuts and bolts, but wasn't as good at the sales part, right? So they needed each other and it was apparent from the beginning. That was very much the impetus for the setting for Hall. And like the character archetype in terms of how Joe starts is very much informed by my perception of my dad when I was little. But he, within him is also Steve Jobs and a lot of these innovators who have their finger on the pulse but can't quite articulate and need a lot of people around them. Walt Disney was like this, right? The worst animator in the room might be Walt Disney and Stan Lee wasn't that known well for being an artist, but he could channel the energy and the vibe and ride the wave in a way that really felt magical. And so Joe is very much crafted in the mold of people like that. It was funny when I was younger, I, I told my dad, like, I never want to do what you do. I want to be an artist and I want to be a writer. <laughs> And then when we built the set for Cardiff Electric, which was a company in Dallas in the early 80s selling mainframe system software, and I walked into that set, it was like my dad's office. It was like a bring your oh, kid yeah. to work day. So <laughs> I had completely recreated my dad's profession, albeit in a completely different context. So daddy issues. Yeah. <laughs> and the stories that are born from that. It's super interesting. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking of what you mentioned earlier, where you're like in the car driving, like practicing your pitch. Like, I yeah. think to the energy of season one, Joe, a bit is like we slightly get to see the work behind the curtain. Sales is my job 99% of the time. I It drives me crazy a little bit, but I also love it to some extent. And I do thank my dad for a lot of those skills. I think that I just through osmosis, was able to pick up because I think pitching is performing, which is the converse of what most writers, including myself, aren't interested in doing. <laughs> but you have to perform, right? It's like you write something so that someone else can do it and you can, where's the safest place to be? Oh, it's behind the camera where there's no lights on me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have that introverted side, but you have to, you got to go out there and convince someone to spend millions of dollars. And if you're going to be in charge of it, it should probably be you. And, but that goes back to what I was saying about my dad, which is the easiest sell to make is when you're selling something you believe in and you're able to successfully sell yourself. And those two things are really wedded when it comes to writing or directing or whatever it is you're trying to do in H. Wood. <laughs> 
Yeah, what you're saying is really resonating with me a lot. My dad, as I mentioned, he's also a salesman. He used to say, too, you have to believe in what you're selling to be able to do it well. And I viewed myself as separate or different. I was like, I don't want to work in an office. I wanted to be a writer. When I actually realized, like, a lot of him and that side of things is in me. And it's probably that part of me that I've discovered later in in my life, but it's helped me at work a lot for sure. And I do think there's a tension between being the creator or the salesperson that's actually helpful. But I, so one thing I was curious about, and maybe this will, maybe we should edit this out because it's too random of a question, but do you have any particular relationship with Death of a Salesman, the play? Oh, yeah. I saw that in your questions. It's funny. I really love that play. And I think I saw not live, but the, when Dustin Hoffman oh, yeah. played Loman and it was uh, Malkovich played Biff, it was an incredible performance. And I, I, I think of that play a lot. I also really love Brian Dennehy's performance as well. It's a little different. It's more like kind of mock gregarious. It just shows you like the different ways to play those characters, but still get across the basic ideas of what are, what's foundational about them. Yeah, I really love that play. I've read it and I've watched multiple performances of it. I really enjoy it. It's a sad, sad play. But it it's is. Very good. Yeah. So my dad likes that play. I think Willie Loman sometimes he'd bring up, but I'm curious about your feelings on it because I almost cannot take it. To me, it is the saddest piece of literature in existence because Willie Loman is so vulnerable. He is so ashamed of his perceived failures. And it's just, it's brutal. And the thought of my dad feeling like that, the thought of him identifying with Willie Loman ever is so brutal to me. I almost can't watch it. And I was thinking of this in relation to Halt. I was thinking in some ways, I feel like for me, the death of a salesman almost feels like the shadow side of Halt, which I think is about embracing the creativity of failure and moving forward energetically in partnership with others. So yeah, I, was- I agree. I think it's, we talk about with Halt a lot that obviously since our characters exist within the cracks of real history, we know they're not going to cross the finish line and have everything they ever wanted. They don't know that. And so the story becomes one of, will they ever be at peace with that realization? And I think obviously the hardest person for to accept that realization would be Joe. Yeah, And I think that the idea of death of a salesman of he was liked, but not well, liked. let he was liked, but not well liked is the characters in halt, like very much have successes that most people would dream of, but they're not the top top, right? Or they're beaten to the punch by X factor or this variable or this better execution of the idea. It doesn't mean that their pursuit is any less sincere. I felt this. Last night, I was in a feeling sorry for myself mode, and we started the new season of Succession. And the credits were going, the opening credits were going, and I said to my wife, I'll never have a show like this. And it's funny, right? Because somehow the show that Chris and I made, it has remained somewhat indelible in a non-monoculture, hyper-content era. People still talk about it. We're talking about it, right? Show went off the air six years ago. 
So that's very special. And who knows what I'll do next or this or that. But yeah, sometimes you have those feelings where you feel confronted with your own perceived or not mediocrity. Yeah. Another story like that would be like Amadeus, right? Salieri was a great composer, but he couldn't live with the fact that Mozart was Mozart and he was aware that Mozart existed. Right. So it's like yeah. the pain, the special pain of that. That's the Willie Loman pain. And I think that Joe's not Willie Loman, but he had to have a reckoning of I'm not going to be at the top at the end of this story. I think with Joe, and I think to a lesser extent, well, not to a lesser extent, probably a better extent, the other characters realized was that there is no top. The, the, the phrase that's batted around too much is it's the journey, not the destination. But Joe is able to look back on his storied adventure and his life and the connections forged, which the whole show is about, and the endeavor of computing being one of connection and a different evolved form of human connection. And does it lead to more connection or disconnection between people? And you can look at social media now and go, are we completely isolated from one another more than we've ever been, even though we, I can contact yeah. anybody 24-7. There's a very much about that. But this, it was a story about people seeking connection having connection, losing connection, realizing that even if a connection is finite, it was still very valuable and the most valuable things they've had in their life. When Joe says yeah. it's the, it's, the computers aren't the thing, they're the thing that gets you to the thing, I think he's talking about human connection in a way. There, it's a way that gets you to a really evolved state of connecting and resonating with another human being. And I think yeah. he's able to look back and realize he did that. I don't think Willie is able to look back and realize he did that. So that's the tragedy of that story. I love what you're just saying about Joe. This is the second time I've mentioned this play on this podcast, but have you ever read or seen Arcadia by Tom Stoppard? I read it a while ago, but I it's been years and years. Yeah, it's fallen out of my recall memory. The reason I bring it up is because I love it. And there's one concept in there where it, there's this guy who's a mathematician and the play is talking about kind of the concept of fractals, which also become a metaphor for just life. I'd say the message I take from it is that the shape of things at a grand scale and a small scale is the same. And so it is worthwhile to engage meaningfully with the small things in front of you because they are going to have the same themes and experiences as the bigger things. And when I think about work, I find that a helpful way to view work because even things like this podcast or a newsletter I write or really thinking about management and people, sometimes I think, oh, this can feel a little myopic. It's just about work. But I've really found that by like deeply thinking about this shit that I'm doing every day, it is like true connection with other people and it really quickly gets you to the bigger themes of life. And so I really love that about Joe's character and the fact that he to your point, he goes through such a an incredible arc with tech, but I think ends up as a humanities professor. Is that right? Yeah. So like, you know, yeah. the nine, I realize I'm saying your own story back to you and you're like, yeah, no shit, Meredith, I wrote it. But the fact that he went that all this with tech and ended up like studying human nature really resonated. You know, I love it so much. Yeah. That's, I think he was seeking that from the beginning and I think it took him a long time to get there. But it's, uh, there's a Zen concept called the Yugen which is that you must depart for a destination. The destination ultimately being where you started from, but you must go on the destination to find that place. And I think that Joe very much goes on a journey of Yugen in the, in, well, in the story. That's a really cool concept. I'm going to have to look that up after. Thank you. All right. I could keep going into this, but let me see. I'm going to try and 
maximize our time together really yeah. kind of fast. But I would want to talk about Donna and Cameron on sure. Halt as well. So they are amazing female characters. They're talented, flawed, complicated, and they are also worthy of our affection and curiosity. How intentional was the way that you approached writing them? And do you have advice for other male creators writing female characters? First and foremost, I would say that writing a female character, write them as a person. You can write, if you can write people, you can write a large swath of people of any kind of gender or identification. Obviously, as you get further out from your own experience, it's important to connect with and converse with and interface with people of that mold that you're trying to portray. I think that's incredibly important. But for us, Donna and Cameron were fascinating because they had so many of the same drives it, that Gordon and Joe had, but less liberty to just freely pursue them for various reasons. Cameron, I think, was viewed as very young, fringe, problematic, a woman, man's world, Donna. Similarly, we talked about how Donna is coming out of the more first wave of feminism, right? So she's working. She's at Texas Instruments as an engineer, but she also makes the kids' lunches. It's just without question, right? Like she does all that stuff. And so she's very much in that role. And she's in a, a somewhat of a breadwinning role. And Gordon is someone who feels he's just naturally entitled to pursue his dreams, like it or not. And they both come from trying that together. So that there's an enlightenment in their marriage and in their dynamic, but there's still a lot of tradition and traditional roles. And I, I think that it's what was really interesting for us was when we would put Cameron and Donna together, they do have different viewpoints when it comes to feminism, I think, that is generational. And so letting that spool out between the two of them, I think, was a lot of fun, just because Donna feels like there are certain rules she has to abide by, even if she wants to be a professional. Yeah. And Cameron is in a place where she's like, there shouldn't be any rules at all. There, there's growth and arc in both of them in that way. There was another question I think you had asked about, how, I forgot where it was, but I was like, how, do, how does the story... How do you know where to go in the story or what was the writing experience like? It, for us, it was, we always talk about this, is like at a certain point when you've done the work, the story starts to tell you where it wants to go. And like it, it will, if you're listening, it will reject certain things and it will accept certain things. And it's, there's like a narrow parameter of what works and what doesn't. And I, obviously you can challenge some of that, push it. But I think that for us, we had low ratings in the first season. We were also coming in at a time when that first, like I was talking about golden age mold, which was a lot of shows about male antiheroes bucking the system, whether it be Don Draper, Walter White, or Tony Soprano, that we'd seen that very well. And we, le we tried to start from that. We started from that place. And I will admit, I think Chris and I were young writers. We're trying to get into the business. You're emulating some of that. But then I think once we had our feet underneath us, the idea was to explode that. So in the second episode, and even from the start, you realize that Joe doesn't have a master plan and is maybe flying by the seat of his pants, which we thought was interesting. Here's a guy that doesn't seem to have all the answers, but has to sometimes pretend he does. And when you lean into that and you start to deconstruct these things, and we wanted Donna to become involved in the main plot of the story from the beginning. That's why she's an engineer in the pilot. 
It's why she fixes the speaking spell. But we didn't know how. And I think it was, you just, you find that way. And so by the time first season ended, critically, we were doing much better. People were starting to embrace the show. AMC wanted to renew it, but it was really like a free ball. It was like, where are we going? They wanted some changes, but it was, it seemed obvious to us that what we would follow in the next season is the next endeavor, which would be mutiny as opposed to Cardiff Electric. And I think that this, the themes of the show led to, to that reinvention we did every season where things just feel very different and yet it's the same characters and they're pursuing it, but in different permutations and in different relation to each other. And time and again, there's the rebels like Joe and Gordon in the first season who then become the system that then needs to be rebelled against, which is Cameron and Donna. And then mutiny becomes a major going concern. And then there's a rebellion against that and so on. Right. And then things just get radically reinvented and there's that disruptor model in terms of tech language that comes into play with Hall. So it just lent itself to that a lot. A lot is easy to make that transition. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's that's fascinating. And all right, I want to jump now a little bit. You and I had emailed about the concept of content. And I know you're maybe you take umbrage with the term, which I totally understand. I feel like I have a ambivalent relationship to it myself. And I was listening to, I don't know if you ever listened to the Ringer podcast, The Watch. Do you know that one? I do know, but I haven't heard it in a while. I like it a lot. But they had on HBO CEO Casey Bloys. It was a great interview, but I was surprised by how much he was using the term content to describe premium television programming. Right. And so I'm, can, I'd be so curious for you to talk about your thoughts on the term content and its impact on the creative industry, television or otherwise. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a word that I've, I think I, it's a word I've been hearing for quite a while because I, like I said, I came out of this weird social media tech marketing side of things. There was this kind of brief detour in my long and circuitous writing path. But for me, and also I was thinking about this, content isn't a, a new word. I, I think of it as it, it would still pop up. Like if you're watching something on TV, it would be like, there's like mature content in this. The following has mature content or like violent yeah. or sexually explicit content. Viewer discretion is advised. And I was thinking about what bugs me about it now is that when you use it in the context of that, that's just an example. It's saying part of a whole and that now it's become the whole. And the content to me is the word, if you're going to look at it semantically, seems like a, a measurement of value or a measurement of volume, yeah. like a unit of measurement content. There's a certain amount of content in here that you might find offensive. There's a certain amount of content in here you might think is laugh out loud hilarious. Now it's just content. And I think it it speaks to a, a concept of volume, big or small, volume, stuff, anything. And it has no connotation other than that. It can't. Once in a while, my wife, I don't know if it's some meme or I don't know where it came from, but the phrase like, this is the content that I crave like that. My wife and I will say that to each other, but my wife yes. is a teacher and a poet. And like we do buck against the word content, especially when it's used to describe things that are more than just a big chemistry beaker full of shit. You know what I mean? It's like, how much content do we have? It's 
look at all the content. It, you can, it, you can just hear it. it. It's always associated with volume. And I think that the moment that art, pop art, entertainment, things that are meant to engage and like we were talking about before, connect, are reduced to volume metrics, they lose some magic, right? They lose some value. And I will say that the way that word can be used against people who make content, <laughs> like myself, content creators, my favorite term, is it inherently devalues them, in my opinion. And what they do or can, I'm not saying it always, look, the guy from HBO, it's going to be in every memo he reads. So it's just the language that he uses. It's the vernacular of the industry. Yeah. But I will say studios and networks, whoever, when they refer to everything as content, especially when it comes to streaming, and I hear this all the time, we got a lot of buckets to fill. <laughs> it's with what? Who gives a shit? Flop? You know what I mean? Like gruel, porridge, like Oliver Twist. It, it gets under my skin because I think it can actually when it can be used to devalue the work of the artist and the artists themselves. You look at things that are going on right now, like the WGA negotiations with the AMPTP or this or that, when things just become content and it becomes a volume business, which by the way, it always has been at a certain extent, volume business. We got a program, whatever, against these soap commercials. We got so much bandwidth to, to put on the platform. We need to fill it with stuff. But I think that when it's viewed just as that, as opposed to something that can at, bet, at least entertain someone and get their mind off of their own life problems for 22 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, at most transcend, right? When it's something yeah. that is truly transcendent, when it becomes widgets, then people aren't incentivized, to use one of their words, as much to compensate the widget maker <laughs> who is not just there to make widgets, but is got into this business. Obviously, some people get in it for bad, for bad faith reasons, but got in to connect with people, to got in, got in to express themselves in ways that they have difficulty expressing themselves otherwise about how they see or feel the world. Obviously, I think with art, or entertainment or any of these kind of things, these skill sets, like it, there's a certain amount of ego that comes with what I have to say is inherently more important than others. I don't necessarily believe that about myself, but I feel that I must say it in order to remain balanced emotionally, mentally, psychologically. I must express myself in order to feel like I have a purpose or that I am a part of society, I feel like I must be heard. Now we can go into all my therapy sessions as to why, but I feel that I must have that because it maybe stems from some irrational thing. My mom on the phone while I'm a baby in a crib crying. Who knows? But yep. not to say that my mom was like that. My mom was great. But there are a million different primal reasons why we are the way we are. But when it becomes a profession, when it becomes more than a profession, when it becomes a vocation, right? Which is to say something that is the equivalent of a priesthood. And I'm not going to say I'm doing anything holy here. You can see all the stupid toys I have around my office and I have deadlines to hit and you turn it in and you go, I hope it's good. But it is a vocation because it is something I find myself doing outside of concern of compensation, 
which is something that can be exploited by the people who are supposed to then compensate. And when they go, how many widgets you doing? Or, you know, we don't need that many widgets. We're good on content for the moment. It robs and generalizes and homogenizes all the unique voices, experiences, and shared connectivity that this type of artistry can provide to other people, even if it's just like you said, on a small scale, one person seeing Death of a Salesman and it reminds them of their father and they have trouble even finishing reading the play. To a certain person, Death of a Salesman is content. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's where it gets problematic for me. It's a slippery slope. As you're talking about the concept of the chemistry set, I'm thinking of the way that like content, the contents of a package mean like the shape of the package is predetermined. The package is the commodity. The very first episode of Content People that we did, I talked to Todd Henry, who's written some cool books about being a commercial creative. And one thing we touched on was a little bit why I think in particular creatives more so than other professional service workers have the potential of feeling slash being exploited because your creed it's not just like your ability to put together a spreadsheet or your brain power on a strategy it's like a little bit of the essence of who you are is going into what you're doing yes and when people when you have to attach process product or money to it it gets complicated and are there any like how, in practice, how do you think the use of the term content could be maybe weaponized against creatives? And do you have any advice for how they could guard against that? Well, I think what you're talking about first, like that intersection of art and commerce, that's such a uh, that's such a not moral and cultural and otherwise. And it's tough. Halt was about that, right? It was let's change the world, but at the end of the day, how many units of the computer sold? right? The intersection of art and commerce is really tough. It, it, and it exists in my industry. It's, I might be writing my favorite comic book in the world, but it needs to move a certain amount of books on the shelf for the company to continue printing it. And I don't hold that against the company. You know what I mean? And the same thing with Hall. What are our viewer numbers? What are our DVR numbers? What are our DVR plus seven numbers? All of those things come into it. I think the the weaponization of content is what I was referring to earlier is when it can be used potentially either consciously or subconsciously to devalue what you just described, which is the work of someone putting in an essence of who they are into what is being, at the end of the day, sold, or my favorite word, consumed. When content is consumed, content consumers, when we reduce ourselves to this kind of base level understanding of it, then you get things like pirating is okay. And listen, the person that pirating is going to hurt the most is going to be the record label, or it's going to be the studio, or it's going to be all these places that are quote unquote unassailable. But they're they're not these days. Number one, everything is shaky. You look at every kind of creative industry and it's all contracting and fluctuating and being weird. Yeah. All of this. But it does take from someone who is giving a lot and you get things like Like the functionality and mechanics of AI-generated art or writing are fascinating to me, obviously, from a tech standpoint. From an ethical standpoint, I think they're also really interesting and also really naughty because I work with a lot of comic book artists 
who are threatened, I think rightfully so, by AI-generated art. And generated, I don't even think is the right word. It's largely regurgitated. And I say that not pejoratively. I say that in terms of describing the technical process of how it's done. And I can say, give me the Hoth battle from Empire Strikes Back as drawn by Daniel Warren Johnson, a wonderful comic book artist. And they will go, the computer will do a really interesting thing when it does that. And it'll come back and it'll be, you'll have the stimulus beta wave brain reaction of, wow. But you have to understand that what the computer did was it went through a lot of Star Wars, which the computer didn't create. It went through the work, the production designing work of Empire Strikes Back. It went through Irvin Kirshner, the director's work. It went through the performances of all of those actors. It went through George Lucas's storytelling. It went through Daniel Warren Johnson's art, which is something that he's practiced forever his whole life, speaking of vocational word. And it mashed them together quite well. You can see the seams in a few places. And it made this for you. And it's cool. It's interesting to look at. But when people balk at that or say, and I'm not speaking for Daniel, like an artist goes, hey, <laughs> there can be this defensive reaction of whoever typed in that prompt that goes, you're a gatekeeper or this is what, this is radical freeing of content. It's like freeing it from who? You think, and it, you think comic book artists live in like a huge mansions? Like that industry is contracting too. You know what I mean? Like, if I was just a comic book writer, I couldn't live. I couldn't live on that. I couldn't support my three kids that take up most of my time. You know what I mean? So when art, that's a version of art becoming content that gives me pause and gives me concern. I have nothing against technological evolution, but I think that there are ethical concerns at play always in technological evolution. And we did this with Halt all the time. We never even had to say it out loud because it was obvious that these people were sincere and they believed in what they were doing and they were like, they wanted to change the world and they did. I heard an NPR story that said that the invention of the transistor was the equivalent of humans discovering fire in terms of parabolic growth of technological advancement in human society. But with the, with the invention of fire, you get the combustion engine and you get the industrial revolution and then you get like kids getting their little fingers chopped off. Then you get the labor movement. And then you get environmental concerns and you get a hole in the ozone layer. And I'm not saying all the things that came out of fire are bad. Obviously, who doesn't love a, a good seared tartar? But it, it's some of this stuff. Technology and humans are really interesting because they, it just move One moves so much faster than the other. We can't keep up. Yeah. I think AI, AI is AI art generation or writing. It, we can't keep up because it goes faster than we do. It's just the nature of the beast. And like the characters in Hulk, we know they changed the world. Maybe not them specifically, but they helped. And collectively, now here we are. And there's no off switch on the internet. We all now have phones in our pocket and we will for the foreseeable future. I was, in a, I was on a camping trip in Joshua Tree with my son's fourth grade class. And we were in a place called the Cactus Mart, which grows its own cactuses and cacti. And you can plant them in little pots yourself. And they've been there since the 70s. And it's this kind of like little road stop place. And I overheard one of the kids saying to their friend, man, I can't wait to get a phone. And that kid just had a four day incredible experience in Joshua Tree. And then 
both exist. They, it, I'm not taking anything away. With, I'm not saying that's a bad kid. I'm saying that's how much power this shit has over us. And there's no going back. And I think, so we didn't have to say it out loud and halt because we still, our brains are still hunter-gatherer brains. We haven't even caught up to sedentary farming, let alone yeah. AI-generated art that does it quote-unquote, for us. That's why we're still eating cookies, because we think it's a fig tree and we're never going to come across one again for the rest of our life. So we need to eat as much as possible and put fat on our bodies so that in case we starve six months from now, it'll take longer for us to die. So technology and humanity, it's just the tempos are very different. And so it's fascinating and scary. And so when we start saying things like content, we sound like technology and we sound like technology going... This is just what this is and nothing more. And therefore, it deserves little money next to zero compensation or zero compensation. And at the end of the day, maybe not even our respect. And that's where we start to destroy our own humanity. <laughs> How's that? Wow, I didn't. That's a. Um, oh, yes, I love that perspective. And I'm glad you brought AI into it because I wanted to ask, how do you think AI is going to impact how stories are told and characters are developed? And it sounds, I would guess that you're resigned, but... I think it. my answer would only be, it will. And yeah. I think that the best of us will adapt in, in constructive ways, in evolved ways. And I think the worst of us will adapt in exploitative ways. My wife is a high school teacher and right now AI can generate a paper that's written at the seventh grade equivalency level. But what the bigger concern is that students are no longer reading texts because you can say not just what happens in The Great Gatsby, and it'll tell you. It'll, you can say, what are the predominant themes in The Great Gatsby? And it'll be pretty close. Yeah. But it gives, you a, it gives you a very thin patina of knowledge that if you push on it, it's not dynamic and it actually gives like a soft wall of butter where my wife can ask a certain question and someone goes, I don't know. Now relate, great. Now relate Jay Gadsby's ennui to the suffering of the master in Kokoro. And the student goes, I didn't type that in. Can you give me a second? I got to go back to my laptop. Yeah, like they're out. Th the thinking is being outsourced to these. The thinking is being outsourced. Yeah. And some of that isn't bad. And some of that can, like I said, it can deprive you of what makes you or the specialness of, that we have as a sentient species, one of the few fully sentient species on the planet. Chris, you've given, you've given me so much to think about, and this has been such a fun conversation. I know we're a little bit over. Oh, so. it's totally fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good for another little bit. I'm just, okay. I have another kid errand. That's actually where I'm going to go after this. All right, cool. Then maybe I've got three questions around comic books I'd love to get to with that. Sure, yeah. All right. So one thing I'm curious about is how does creating stories for comic books differ from creating stories for television? Well, I think that obviously one way they're the same is that they're both primarily a visual medium. And I think that means that the work as important as the writing is, the work doesn't translate and become what it's supposed to be or intended to be without the work and talents and skills of others. In comics, that means the artist, that means the colorist, that means the letterer. It's not a comic book, otherwise it's a Word document. The same thing is true for Final Draft. It's a screenplay. It's a blueprint for something else. So that's the way they're very similar. It's very reliant on experts in a visual medium becomes very collective in that way. They're different in that like comics are very distilled, right? So it's it has to be sparse and simple and 
the art has to lead what you're doing. So the writing has to take a back seat. I think that's true with maybe movies and TV too, but there's less of a grace area. You have to really boil a story down to its most potent pieces and try to tell it very economically, which I always find challenging, but it's a fun challenge to try to just be succinct as possible and let the artists do their thing and also be open to letting the artist change it, which that happens in film and TV too, whether it be the director or you down the road in the editing suite. Comics are also, they seem to be faster just because the book's got to go on the shelf if it's greenlit to be on a series. And so you're just moving quickly. It's also a smaller feedback loop. You're really working with an artist, an editor, a colorist, a letterer, some designers perhaps are coming in to do logo treatments and things like this guest artists to do variant covers, but it's a very small feedback loop. So it happens, it happens very quickly. It's a very fast process. Whereas TV, especially in the development and features can last your whole life. Here it's like, oh, this is still going. So yeah. Okay. Thank you. It's really interesting to, to think of the order of things. I read Hellcat and I really loved it. Chris Hassan, well, thank, thank you for listening. I for getting me that copy or the PDF. So I don't want to harp on it too much, but I really love that you, so my understanding is that you introduced or reintroduced this female character in your Iron Man run and are now creating a whole series based on her. Do I have that right? Yeah, pretty much. She's actually, it's, I, what I love, one of the big things I love about Hellcat, whose name is also Patsy Walker, is that she actually has been around since 1945 and started as a teen comics character like Archie, but a girl. And then when Marvel became more superhero oriented following the launch of Fantastic Four, they reintegrated her into the Marvel universe and then she put on a costume and became a hero. So there's a lot that's gone on with her that's fascinating. She has like several different origins, which is great. Were you drawn to her for a particular reason? Was it your idea to introduce her back in Iron Man or is that part of the brief? Yeah, no, I wanted to bring her in. I, she's always been a favorite of mine. One, because, it, listen, I love Spider-Man. He's probably my favorite hero. And his origin is so perfectly told in, I think it's 11 or 12 pages in Amazing Fantasy 15. It's not even the full issue. And it's everything, right? Where it's this, he gets his powers. He's picked on at school. He's going to make money with the powers. But then his uncle is always telling him with great power comes great responsibility. He lets a criminal go that, robs the wrestling place where he's working and he lets the guy go and he's a jerk about it. And the cop says, why didn't you stop him? And he says, it's not my problem. And then that cop kills Uncle Ben. He feels guilty. And so he's very much a character built on grief. And it's just crystallized in those beautiful 12 pages that Stanley and Steve Ditko did. Hellcat is spread out over like decades. It's here's where she came from as a teen romance character. Here's how she became a hero. Here's how we justifying all those books about her as a teen Archie comics character. And then then she went and did some like really weird kind of amazing space, cosmic, supernatural stuff that a writer named J.M. DeMattis did when she was part of a team called The Defenders. And then in the 90s, I think the thing that really drew me to her was she married the son of Satan, Damon Hellstrom, who was a good guy for a while and a hero, and he was in the Defenders. But then, obviously, he's also the son of Satan, so things went pretty south. In the 90s, they they took him in a much different, darker direction. And Patsy ended up a casualty of that in a way where she, one of the few characters, because I think comics tend to shy away from this, 
committed suicide. Oh, and wow. she came back years later because it's comics. They, they found her in the underworld or in hell and brought her back to life. And so there's that kind of piece over here. And there's the piece that like she comes from a broken home and but then she was like America's number one sweetheart. And then she was also an Avenger. And, and it, there's all these different pieces from her. And for a lot of her history, she just didn't have any superpowers. Sometimes she's able to do certain things. But this book is really dealing with, and the reason I've always been drawn to the character is from the mental health aspect. The, the what do you do when you're given a second chance like that? When you, when you make a choice like that in your past, when you are this bubbly, buoyant, vibrant resilient human being who's funny like Peter Parker and decides to be a hero like Bruce Wayne. You just put on the costume and go. Like that's an interesting character to me as opposed to I must be this hero like Superman or something like that where it's like I've been given, I'm basically a god so let me. So Patsy is, I'm a person and I'm just going to decide to help people. That's very interesting to me. And then also she made this very dark choice in her past. We touched upon a lot of the mental health stuff in Iron Man and she was a really good counterbalance to the ambition of someone like Tony Stark and the insane drive talking about Steve Jobs and Joe, right? Like Tony yeah. is very much in that same world of let's go, let's build it, let's fix it, let's do it. Uh, thinks about the ethics later. Patsy was a very grounding force in that. To be able to do her own book has been great because it's been a way to restate her origin into kind of a cohesive emotional foundation and have her really examine these fundamental questions about herself. She has a lot of darkness in her past. She has a lot of vibrance in her past. And how do those two things coexist? And that's really what the book's about, is examining that, which has been a lot of fun. I've been wanting to do a Hellcat book for years, and I'm so thrilled that Marvel's being able to do it. Alex Lynn's the artist. I got to plug him just because he's an amazing talent, and I feel like he's drawing the book in a way that makes it unlike anything that's on the shelves right now. So it's a lot of fun. It was... It was really cool to read. I'm going to keep my eye out because I was so interested in the character and the story. And the demographics for this podcast seem to be mostly women between 20 something and 35. So I'd say if you fall into that and you've maybe stayed away from comics, this could be a really cool one to start with because it certainly grabbed me and is a really cool, interesting, complex female character I was really loving. So thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. And you've done a lot of really well-received comic book work. What inspired that pivot for you? How did, I know you mentioned, I think around 2017, getting into it, but how did that come about? I've loved comic books since I was in grade school and middle school. And I gravitated to things like Star Wars and Star Trek. Well, because I think I had that introverted side. And I also struggled with a lot of mental health things that as an only child and someone who really opened up to my parents about that stuff when I was a kid, I think comics and Trek and Star Wars, it just provided me a sounding board and a method of escape and a glimpse into the strange and weird in a way that wasn't, that didn't label it as bad or something that should be excised. It was stories about, especially in comics, it's really just, especially even Superman, the stories about people who would otherwise be outcasts choose to take the things they're blessed and cursed with and use them to try to do the right thing, whether it be the X-Men or Spider-Man or whatever, or even just Batman, the terrible thing that happens to him, the tra traumatic thing that happens to him as a kid, to try to turn around and make that into a force of good. Even though I've, I often talk about, <laughs> I talk about how Batman is really like 
an examination of the concept of revenge and how far it can push you. And is that necessarily a good thing? And that's what's cool about these characters, I think, at their best is that they're all human. And I say human, not in a literal sense, because a lot of them aren't, but they're flawed mortal people who make the wrong decisions. And that's always fascinating to me when these paragons screw up and then they have to fix that too. And that's Star Trek, that's Star Wars, that's Luke choosing between the light and that's Trek being like Starfleet, explore strange new worlds. Whoops, we screwed up this entire civilization. Let's go back and fix that. Can we? Oh, we made it even worse. I think that kind of stuff is really just so much fun because it's about it's about the the folly and the beauty of the human endeavor but writ large and in hyperbole so you get lasers shooting out of eyes you get spaceships who doesn't love that you know what i mean so I yeah. that that's where it came from when i was a kid but yeah so I, I had an idea for a comic book just i had an idea for 20 years and it didn't really translate into anything i didn't know what to do with it and i was able to talk to a comic book writer named willa wilson and she introduced me to Karen Berger, who had spent her career at DC and founded Vertigo Comics, which was really, if you go back and look at, here are comics that are exploding the medium of what it means to be a comic book. I think Vertigo was really at the floor of that in the 90s. And Karen was launching her own kind of boutique imprint within a company called Dark Horse Comics. And she was looking for out-of-the-box stuff because I think Karen has a really... She has a legacy and a vanguard of work to already stand behind. So she really looks to push the envelope. So she helped me develop that idea. My first book was called She Could Fly. And yes, it's about a teenage girl who sees someone flying around in the sky in the city of Chicago and is trying to figure it out. But it also deals with obsessive compulsive disorder and intrusive thoughts and feeling alienated from friends and family because of what's going on in your mind. And it was all very much drawn from a personal place. Yeah, that's how that happened. And then it just parlayed into somebody like that book. And they call me up. You want to, what about Dr. Doom? What about this? You have any other ideas for your own original stories? And so it's just a world I fell into. And it's one I absolutely love working in. It's just the best job. And thank you for that. As you're, as you're talking, I think something so simple and obvious about comic book stories or hero stories that had never occurred to me before is just the way that they by accepting embracing or acknowledging the like sad or dark sadder things that have happened to them or the darker parts of themselves is all it's the shadow to everything else that they can contribute to the world or sometimes that it is for that and that feels really powerful and also too at first as i'm going through the questions i'm like gosh, Chris has done so much. How am I going to weave these together? But the themes that you're talking about in what resonates with you and that you bring forth in the comic book stories is really similar to Halt. And it's just, a, so I think maybe for my final wrap-up question, I'm really curious to know if you have, what do you think about the muse? Do you have a relationship with the muse? Yeah. Do you believe in it? Do you have a creative ethos of some kind? Because I'm definitely feeling like a force that is uniform throughout all these different facets of your creativity. Yeah, that's an interesting question because I saw that one in there and I was like, oh, wow, I don't, <laughs> I haven't thought about it. It's weird. I think maybe there's a sense of modesty in me that doesn't like accept something like a concept like that. But I think you're, I think I do in some way, like on a surface level, I think it's if I respond a certain way to other art that I might encounter, whether that be a movie or a show, 
Music is a really powerful thing for me that can generate ideas, whether it's a walk through the LACMA or seeing a repertory screening of some movie or discovering some film, some old gem. And then that kind of gets me thinking. I think that, but I, that's, it's relatively common. I was telling my wife last night because I told her about this question <laughs> and I was saying that how sometimes I can be a strong motivator for me, less so now because I'm 41, but especially when I was younger, spite or angst or even anger, I think could be a really a strong motivator in my work. And it could be a powerful force in my writing, not that it would necessarily come off as angry, but it would be something that would spur me towards breaking through an idea. It was either like frustration or the attitude of fuck you, you don't understand me kind of thing that would yeah. make me put something down on the page that was that would end up being fairly unique, or at least in my opinion, or in, in enough people's opinion that would want to hire me to do something. But like that doesn't creep up as much just because I think I'm older. I've done enough therapy and Zen meditation, and I'm also tired from three kids. So I'm not like super angry as much as I am. Although there are days, sure, sure, multiple a week where I'm furious, but it sometimes takes the form of being just resigned. I'm tired of, guys, why is this happening? It just becomes that. But yeah, I feel like I have a relatively unique attachment to anger in my writing, or at least have historically. So my muse might be a little bit more pissed off than the classical Greek sense. Yeah. And that might come through in like, I wrote a book called The Blue Flame is a comic book and it really came from my frustration about the world as it is. It was really just what point do superhero books have at all in the world of today? And I think it was following some tragedy, shooting, this or ecological disaster. This is what good would one hero be against some sort of infinitely complex human concept? problems, things like that. Or sometimes it's literally just, fuck this executive. They don't get me. Watch this. Like it's, it could be that. I think it definitely takes the form of that. Yeah. A lot of the time. I think that's really cool. I'm glad that you said that. I don't think a lot of people would give that answer, but I think it's really real. And I do think anger, I don't know, for me personally, I have a hard time with anger. It's like the most physically uncomfortable emotion for me. So I tend to probably like repress it a little bit or not be able to tap into it. But I know what you mean is like when I can harness it, it's like the most energetic, powerful version of myself. That's just fuck this, bust through these yeah. brick walls, figure it out. But it's not often thought of as a generative energy. I feel like it's often just like the least accepted emotion. Right. It can be, we shame ourselves with our anger and yes, it can be destructive. And I think it, it, but I think it becomes even more destructive when not addressed or processed. And sometimes writing is a good way for me to process anger. That's not, that's healthy. And because yeah. if I don't, then it does bottle up and then it can come out in other ways that are not helpful to anyone, especially myself. And I think that if I can, it's harder these days, but I, if, if I can, if I do have that moment where I can be energized by it and not just overwhelmed and just feeling ah, like I might be able to put it into something and have it work. And then, then I feel great. It's helped me process the negative feelings and rewarded me with something that I'm proud of, at least for the time being. Thank you for sharing that and for giving it so much thought. Is there anything I forgot to ask that you'd want to have talked about or said? No, I mean, I think 
talked about, yeah, I feel good. I mean, yeah, we talked about, we touched on everything. I even have a little bit of some notes here and no, I think we hit it all. I think it's nice to get praise for Halt and Catch Fire, but I think, and obviously that show, people say, oh, they, Chris Rogers and Chris Cantwell, but there were so many people that worked on that show and wrote that show and the actors of that show, the ensemble, the directors of that show, the producers, it was, I think that it's such a collective medium that it's important to acknowledge that show was lightning in a bottle, not just because of Chris and I, but because of the people that we were fortunate to work with on it at that time, which is otherwise we wouldn't do. There's so many different ways that a show and that show could have gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. And the time period and the people ensured that it didn't. And that was integral to my success was those people. Yeah. Good partnership that you're talking about at the start. Yes. Yes. It's not just two. Yeah. yeah. Chris, thank you so much. You were so generous with your time and like, you're such a good interview. You're so interesting. <laughs> you have such great answers <laughs> to your questions. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us. This was a fascinating interview. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Chris. Stay tuned for next week when we will air our final episode of season one. And if you like this convo with Chris, you'd probably enjoy my newsletter, which is also called Content People. You can subscribe at the link in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a good week. Bye.